interstate and a mayor five foot two. No other town in the whole 48 can have compared to you. Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 7th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play God Shows Up is now in performance at the Actors Temple Theater on 47th Street. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fallowspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, and uh, welcome back for the two of you, or should I say the three of us. All of us were off last week. and. Matt Tamanini and Jan Simpson and Ashley Steves took over this week on Broadway and did a great job looking forward to the upcoming season, both on and off Broadway. So if you missed last week's show, get back and listen to it. It's a lot of fun to listen to. And some um, good recommendations because um, I think they've isolated some of the shows that are going to be hot tickets and hard to get mm-hmm. in smaller theaters for next uh, uh, in the fall. So uh, you want to be on that bandwagon and get those tickets early. Um, this morning brought... Some sad news to us. Uh, we're seeing it around social media and then finally confirmed by Broadway World that uh, Martin Sharnan had passed away at the age of 84. Um, Peter and Michael, do you have any remembrances of Martin? Quite a few, actually. Um, <clears throat> I, Martin Sharnan uh, really made me realize something that uh, is a very important thing for actors to know that if you're in a situation where you have to convey something really sad, you do not cry. You uh, be brave, and then the audience will cry for you. And I learned this when I went to a backers audition of Ballad for a Firing Squad. Now, this was a rewrite of Mata Hari. Back in 1967, the musical Mata Hari opened in Washington and closed there. It was truly a disaster um, in every way. And yet, um, Martin Shannon, the lyricist, wrote it with Edward Thomas, uh, a composer new to Broadway, and with Jerome Coopersmith, who had worked on Baker Street and the Apple Tree. Um, it was a big disaster. And um, the stories of Legion, why it was a big disaster, I won't go into those, but he still believed in it. And I went to a backers audition uh, a year later when they were doing it off-Broadway with a new title ballad for a firing squad. And he, has, he wrote a phenomenal song called Mama, in which a soldier is... Um, thinking about what's going to happen to him. And he's writing a letter to his mother. I'm afraid, Mama, we are done. They have gas, Mama. We have none. And he was so brave in the way he was delivering that song that I just got chills and tears um, because he was just resigned to the fact he was going to die. It wasn't a case of, I'm afraid, Mama, we are done. They have <laughs> gas, Mama. We have none. Not, nothing like that at all. He was so stoic that I cried for him. So um, I first met him uh, during the triad of 2x2 two two in New Haven when 2x2 two two was really 
in very good shape. It would never um, be as good again because Danny Kaye stopped believing in it. So, mm. so Martin really suffered. He, he his first show was Hotspot, which didn't work out. Um, then came Zenda, which closed out, out of town, and um, it was just one disaster after another. He worked on La Strada, which lasted one performance. He wasn't the original writer on that. Lionel Bart of Oliver fame was, but nevertheless, he had such bad luck, and he just never gave up. He had good luck on TV. He won some Emmys for some uh, specials, so he was doing well there, but Broadway was really where it was at for him. He was a uh, big deal uh, in West Side Story, the original cast as an actor, but I thought he was a terrific lyricist, and I urge you to get the Matahari album. Uh, it was released many years later with a revival cast, I think from the cast of the York, many of them, if not all of them, and you will see that what a terrific lyricist he really was. Um, there are so many examples of Matahari that just um, overwhelm me. Uh, a very nice song called Everyone Has Something to Hide that Matahari uh, sings uh, has an especially felicitous lyric, but so does the original lyric. Um, I'm sorry, the first lyric on the show. Um, so uh, it is fact. Is it fact? Um, is is a terrific song, and I, I wish that Matahari had been recorded with a piano, not a synthesizer, because that's what really kills the recording. I think I would listen to it every day if we were done on the piano. But um, still, the lyrics are so wonderful. But again, no luck until, of course, he went into Double Days to buy a gift for somebody and saw this book about Linda Off and Annie. And, and, you know, this was really a tough sell because, I mean, people thought, Little Off and Annie, the girl with no eyes, are you kidding me? Um, that bald guy, uh, what's the story? What are you out of your mind? And he's the one who said, Thomas Meehan, I think you can write a book. And he's responsible for Thomas Meehan's career. Thomas Meehan, ran, of course, ran and went on to do the producers and certainly um, Hairspray with Mark O'Donnell. So, I mean, he became one of our major lyricists. But it wouldn't have happened if Martin Charnon had said to him, listen, um, I think you can write a book for a musical. And uh, certainly we went in there thinking it was going to be this spoofy type thing, uh, campy as could be. And we got so emotionally involved with Annie and Daddy Wapak's caring for them and, and hoping that they would last. And this was all his conception, totally his conception. Um, and he directed it as well and directed it beautifully, that original production, phenomenally well. But um, he really was a fine lyricist. And of course, he never had much luck after that. Uh, sometimes it was of his own doing. We hear um, that he certainly, and uh, but I remember Mama had an affair with Lee Volman, and you know, who knows? But anyway, um, <laughs> I really thought he was top notch, and um, he certainly was very generous with his time with a lot of young writers. A, long, a lot of young writers have told me that when they got in touch with him, he was willing to listen and give advice. Uh, but. You know, I really urge everybody to get that Matahari album, and uh, I'm sure it's still available in one way or another. And um, and listen to it carefully, and see if you don't think that he was a terrific, terrific lyricist. And you know, even in Annie, um, there were so many uh, things in Annie. I mean, we, we people take Annie for granted now, and nobody wants to see it because they've seen it a million times and all that goes with that. But but I mean, certain little details in the in the uh, Annie lyrics. I mean, for example, in NYC, uh, the line about the mayor, um, the, what uh, the New York has the Empire State and a mayor five foot two. I mean, that's that's a, that's an interesting perception. Mm -hmm. So is um, when he uh, says um, no town in the whole forty eight. I mean, that's nice that he brings that in. It's a, it's a nice period feel because there were forty eight states then, not fifty as we have now. So um, he was very good at those details and in, in working them. 
come out. Um, so I really uh, feel bad uh, on a number of levels, and I am very glad that he had at least one major hit proving Orson Welles' theory, you only need one. But because I had seen him do such good work with both 2x2 two two and Matahari, I did not see Hotspot, I did not see Zenda, I did not see La Strada. Um, but um, because I saw that backwards audition, and uh, I never saw the original, uh, I'm sorry, the revival that was played at what was then the Theater de Lise, the Lucille Hotel Theater, it only lasted five performances and was terribly plagued by a producer who supposedly um, ran off with money. Um, I'm not saying that's true, but I did have a friend who worked on the production, and, um, and, and that was an issue as well. But... Um, but really, uh, I am very, very sorry to hear this for a number of reasons. Um, and um, uh, he will always have Annie to go on, and people will remember who he is as a result of that. Do we have uh, any other examples? He was so prolific in in not only writing but directing, and as you mentioned, he performed on Broadway. I, I can't think of, uh, of many other people that have really crossed those lines. Well, that's really true. And, uh, you know, another sh- uh, uh, one other one I want to bring up, uh, it, it's, it's so funny that um, I'm, I'm going to bring this up and say that I burst into tears because it was um, in his review Upstairs at O'Neill's, which he didn't do all of. I mean, he, he commissioned young writers to do it. Um, the, there's a fabulous song by Doug Bernstein and um, Dennis Markell, uh, uh, which is a parody on nothing in a chorus line where um, Mr. Carp gets his say. He says, look, all I wanted mm. to do was a simple improv. You know, it's a very funny song. So there were a lot of good writers that he gave a chance to in Upstairs at O'Neill. But what he did in Upstairs at O'Neill was talking about um, you cannot do a review without stools. And I'm telling you, the song was a traditionally um, structured song. But at the end of the um, of the B section... <laughs> the lyric was, and if worse comes to worse, you got a place you can sit. And, um, and that was precisely <laughs> where that lyric should go. And it was so perfect that I literally cried because I, he knew exactly where to put that joke. And, um, and so, uh, but I did see him perform a couple of times. Um, he did do a, a, a thing down at, uh, NYU talking about his life and uh, it was so funny when he said uh, talking about Annie and he said and I even hear they made a movie of it you know because the movie was not a success you know and, <laughs> and you know that's the way he uh, handled that so um, so yeah um, I'm, I'm going to miss him uh, very much uh, we got together from time to time and uh, he, uh, I, I'm very grateful to him at one time he, he, did, he released a, an album of uh, his most obscure songs uh, obviously from some of the shows I mentioned and one of them was so obscure he said this is one for the Felicia files out there. Um, that's P-H-I-L-E-S. And so uh, I thought it was really nice that he uh, considered me uh, one of these people who would um, know these obscurities. And uh, so I, I'm always grateful for that. And uh, so while he never had another hit, <sighs> will any ever be forgotten? I doubt it, and I hope not, in fact. Yeah, the I that stooled song is so clever i i remember that song i'm not sure if i saw it in that show or if it was another uh in right. another review yeah 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 uh there was a review off broadway review of marty's stuff and bob stillman was in it did you see that show that's the no thrills review right uh, uh yes that, that mm-hmm. that's right yeah mm-hmm. um but that is very clever and we were just talking about um 
the Annie material there were, there was a discussion online in one of the one of the online groups and it you know everyone has an opinion and some people were actually dogging the lyrics of of Annie and somebody said uh focused in on for some reason they were bothered by the lyrics uh that she sings at the beginning uh bet you they're young bet you they're smart bet they collect things like ashtrays and art and somebody said well you know what a silly lyric and uh, oh. you know and someone else said that is exactly what a little kid would sing. Yeah. You know, no, no. Ashtrays and art is, is brilliant. Yeah, it is, you know. And it's like uh, – and, and as Peter was saying before, um, Annie could have been so easily such a disaster mm-hmm. because they had to get the tone so perfectly right. And it was not the tone that they originally intended, which was to be much more, I guess, uh, satiric and light and mocking. Uh, and and it can still – I've always been struck by the fact that um, – I've really only seen one completely successful production of the show, the original. And I think it's because every element of it has to be so perfectly calculated to make to make that work in terms of the tone and the audience's response to the characters. And they certainly achieved it uh, in the first one. And I think that it is in the in the lyrics and the music Perfectly, it's just that people need to interpret it correctly, uh, and it's and it seems much. I mean, it it's much harder than it seems. Some people might look at that show and say how straightforward it is, and in a way, yes, but in a way, no, because it's it's just very very special and uh, and and really quite brilliant the way that they achieved the tone that they that finally was best for the material um and then uh, just briefly as far as the james mentioned about uh marty starting out as uh, uh, one of the original jets in west side story and on that note uh, i know that he and uh, a fellow named dennis grimaldi have been working on a, a documentary about the original production and about the uh surviving cast members of the original production and i'm not sure exactly what the status of that is i, I I hope it's uh, still happening. I hope it's not, uh, uh, you know, stalled or dead. Um, so keep an ear out for that, uh, because then you know you'll be hearing from uh, a lot of those people who are really there. There are quite a few still with us um, from the original company. Not none, uh, a few, a uh, few of the leads, I guess, but a lot of the ensemble, you know, the dancers. So that is something that, uh, like I said. Um, if, if I hear more about it, I'll certainly pass off, pass on the info. Michael, um, I don't think that they ever were considering Annie as in satiric in any way. Um, uh, Martin certainly told me that the first lyric he ever wrote was "The sun will come out tomorrow." Uh, he really wanted to do something to be optimistic at a time when New York was really in terrible trouble. This was around the Ford to New York City drop dead time, uh, when the city was going yeah. close to getting bankrupt. Um, so he always told me he, he thought we needed something optimistic, and that's what the reason. One of the best lyrics in the Annie is not on the cast album, and it's really too bad because in the song "You Won't Be an Orphan for Long," where Daddy mm-hmm. Warbucks offers. Annie to be adopted and she said no I really need to find my real parents and he is determined to do that and that's real love he's going to sacrifice his feelings for her so that she can indeed have her real parents and the lyric is what a thing to occur finding them losing Mm. her 
Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So you won't yeah. be on often for long. And I'm very sorry that's not on the album. I don't understand why it's not. But anyway, that was a decision made. And Scott Farthing, um, who is um, the honcho at uh, Masterworks Broadway, for whom I write a column every Tuesday, tells me that each and every week, Annie is still one of their best-selling albums, even after all this time. And, we're, you know, when, <laughs> we're not that far from 50 years away from Annie. Um, you know, uh, and it took a long time for it to get on. And I saw it at Goodspeed, by the way. I saw the final performance at Goodspeed um, in October, October 3rd, 1976. I remember it vividly. Um, Dorothy Loudon wasn't with it yet. Uh, a woman named Maggie Task was. And there were many things wrong with it, but boy, it had what it really needed. It had the heart. And it was very clear to me that it was going to be a smash hit. And as a result, when it was announced at Broadway, I made sure that I got tickets for the second official performance because I knew the reviews were going to be really good and I knew that the cast would not be able to <laughs> wait to do it for us. And that's the reason I did that. So, but, uh, uh, but to clarify, uh, what I was referring to is hadn't we heard that they were at one time were going to, for example, cast Bernadette Peters as Annie? I think that's more urban legend than fact. I've heard that too, but I've never heard it from Martin. Well, and, uh, all right. I, I, I thought maybe maybe satiric was the wrong word. I, I thought that that was true and, and that that was at least discussed early on. And I, and I thought that they were going for a more uh, spoofy, like not, not nasty satirical, but just more of a spoofy cartoon. Campy? Uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, this is what I have read, but you know, of course, yeah, who it's, knows? Who it's, knows? It's, it's nothing, yeah. nothing that ever happens. So, uh, uh, but but regardless, even if that's not true, I, I do stand by my uh, my larger point that it, it was hard to get the tone right. Uh, mm. You know, uh, the humor, working the humor in with the honest sentiment in in a story, in that story, especially considering what the source material was as a comic that was really a lot of that comic was about was kind of like social humor. Uh, you know, I, it was about yes. ca- capitalism yes. and uh, and, uh, you know, and, and America in the in the Depression era, which is not the the main focus of the musical. It's more about her, you know, her personal relationship with Daddy Warbucks. So I, I yes, I, I do think I've always thought the show is, is a masterpiece and and will mm-hmm. certainly, certainly mm-hmm. live on mm-hmm. forever, probably. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I remember um, the, the article in The Times shortly after the producers opened and Nathan Lane said, well, it won't be long before we have the backlash, you know, because, of course, when the smash hit opens, yeah. it, it isn't long before some people come to hate it simply because of the smash hit and because uh, many of us like to show off that we know the obscure shows and uh, and therefore the hits are below us, um, beneath us is what I should say. Uh, and um, no, uh, hits hits that to be respected for when, when they're good. And this was a good one. And uh, it's hard for people to really realize, too, because, as Michael said, that original production has never never been matched and it was hard to get it right because again when you think of it both leads were replaced because again maggie Mm -hmm. task was replaced by dorothy loudon which indeed um must have been mike nichols idea when he came in to produce and think about that mike nichols had never produced here's a man who was uh, who certainly had broadway uh by the tail i mean he he had one success after another and yet um when he saw this show he, he immediately said i will produce it which is really something um with a guy who had no experience in doing that but he believed in 
in it so much. But <clears throat> having worked with Dorothy Loudon many, many times, um, he certainly, and even put her in the road company of Love, L-U-V, that play, um, he certainly knew that she'd be great for it. But in the meantime, uh, this happened um, after uh, Martin Shannon had to replace the girl who was originally Annie, and, um, and Andrea McArdle uh, got the part, and still... After all these years, one of the finest performances I have ever seen a child give in, what, uh, how many thousands of kids have I seen on stage? Maybe even 10,000. But this was one of the best I have ever, ever, ever seen. And uh, he was lucky that um, he had her, and he was obviously smart enough to uh, say, this is what I really need. Um, I don't think he was happy breaking a child's heart. Um, And, of course, it, it wouldn't be the last time he did it either, I have to admit. But uh, but still, uh, he knew what he needed, and he got it, and he really did get it. She was tremendous in the role, tremendous. And so it's um, it, it was hard to get any right, but um, they obviously did. That, yeah, my point exactly. And all, on a related note, on a related sad note, we, we mentioned Martin's presence in the original cast of West Side Story. Another giant who we just lost was Sid Raymond. Um, yeah, who was one of the orchestrators, yeah. Well, who orchestrated the show with, I guess, in, in uh, working with Leonard Bernstein and whose other <laughs> credits, I mean, if I mentioned the first uh, of the next uh, of his other credits, I could might as well stop there and he would just be a legend based on that only because that show was Gypsy. Uh, So yes, orchestrations for Gypsy and I can get it for you wholesale. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, Bette Midler's Clams on the Half Shell Review, Jerome Robbins Broadway, Crazy for You, etc., etc. He uh, just died on July 5th at 100 years old. Uh, One of the the absolute giants in the field of orchestrations. Uh, let me go back tangentially to uh, Mr. Sharnan for a second. Um, last week when we were off, the uh, I, I was with my family. We were traveling through the heart of America, getting in touch with the real America. Uh, we were in West Virginia, Ohio, Indianapolis, and Kentucky. And in Kentucky, we drove by the, um, I don't know if you guys know about this, the Ark Encounter. Do you know? About oh this? yeah, it's a sure. Full-sized sure, yeah. uh, oh, Noah's Ark uh, replica, oh, sure. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, with so much immersive and site-specific stuff these days, wouldn't a production of Two by Two be great there? Could ah. we get Walter Willison out there to play uh, <laughs> Noah? You know, on the Ark. Uh, although, <laughs> uh, considering I hear they don't do good business out there, it, it's not impossible that we will see. Well, a I have to tell you. <laughs> I, yeah. My politics don't align with the owners of the uh, the Ark Encounter. Um, I think anybody and, who sees God shows up knows that I don't either. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so we were like, we were driving through the interstate and said the Ark Encounter. I said, oh, let's 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 stop and see it, uh, but we'll see it from the road. We're not going to go in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we drove up. And it was $10 to pull into the parking lot off the road, but we could see it in the distance from the road. And there was not a spot to be had, thousands of cars. So really? on that day, um, it was pretty good. I, ironically, the uh, the Ark Encounter did 
uh, have an insurance claim because they had a huge amount of rain and there was water damage to the ark. So they had a oh, funny. <laughs> so, but uh, a a a, a uh, site specific production of two by two. Walter Willison, get on that. And uh, Peter, you're listening to two by two. It's coming up in your rotation soon, isn't it? Yes, because I'm listening to albums chronologically. I started with the '40s, <clears throat> and ironically enough, last night I just finished the Rothschilds, and I put two by two in to listen to this morning. And what an irony that um, indeed Martin has passed, um, because I will hear his lyrics, and I think his lyrics for that show are very good too. Um, and so, uh, I hope others will listen to two by two, a show that was really snake bit by uh, uh, a star who didn't uh, believe in it, but. Um, I do believe that it has quality work in it, both from him and Richard Rogers. So, Peter, you've been doing a lot of traveling, getting your listening in in the car when you're uh, able to. Uh, and you got down to Atlantic City, New Jersey, to see the tour of Jersey Boys. So tell us uh, what's happening down at the Hard Rock. It's a terrific production. Now, I was a little surprised it was going to, that it turned out to be as good as it did. Um, for one thing, I expected a tab version, as it's called. Uh, back in the day when Las Vegas used to do Broadway shows, they often did them uh, in reduced uh, situations with about 90 minutes because they wanted people, of course, to go back to the slot machines. And um, But it was so amazing that during those days – what shows got produced in Atlantic City? I mean, I'm sorry, in, in Las Vegas. I even saw Flower Drum Song there. And for that matter, Tenderloin was done in Las Vegas um, in a shortened version. So I, I fully anticipated that uh, here. And now, it's been a while since Atlantic City has had a Broadway musical um, anywhere in, in its site. The, the, Harris did a few some years ago, about 10, 15 years ago maybe. And, um, but it's nice that there is a Broadway musical in Atlantic City, and I think that, that should happen. So I'm very glad the Hard Rock Cafe has brought in this Jersey Boys. But what's, <clears throat> what's better is that it truly is a first-class production. Um, I was so impressed by everybody who was in it. I thought the tone was terrific. And um, certainly um, the credit is given here to um, Des McEnough. And I don't know if he really did um, come in and, and do the work, but it's his, his credit is there at the bottom of the title page. But um, I really thought it was terrific to hear Frankie Valley done by Johnny Wexler, who really had the, the falsetto voice you need for it. And um, Jonathan Cable is Nick Massey, and Eric Shambliss is Bob Gaudio, um, really, to, um, and Corey Greenan is Tommy DeVito. Terrific. Now, um, it's in an enormous space. And I will say that if you care to go, and it's running through the 25th at least, I hope it extends because um, it really deserves to. But I will say that this is an enormous space. And as a result, make sure you don't get seats on the side, either mm. side, because you will have a hard time seeing everything that's on stage. But if you're in the center, you'll be all right. You'll be all right indeed. And uh, again, you know, it's funny when we talk about Annie being overexposed. I'm sure that many people feel the Jersey Boys now fits that category as well. But um, it's such a solid show. And I've always said one of the reasons it succeeds is because the group was called the Four Seasons. If, if they were called the Four Mavericks, the show wouldn't be as good. Why? Because the Four Seasons gave them the structure of summer, fall, winter, spring. And because of that... Uh, we see uh, the beginning of the uh, of the group and the fall of the group, et cetera, et cetera. It really gave them the structure. And what's also wonderful about Jersey Boys is you really feel like it's 
going to tell the truth. It may not tell all the truth. It may not even tell the majority of the truth. But given early on, we hear that people went to jail, that kids were breaking in, they were breaking into churches, I mean, things like that. You really get the impression that they're not shy about telling the truth. Again, there may be a million stories that really indicate that these people were, were from the gutter. Who knows? But, but the fact that they early on make it very clear that these were not saints, uh, make you believe that you're going to hear the real story. And so that's an important element as well. So uh, for people who haven't, um, who weren't interested in Broadway because they were too young or they didn't discover Broadway and always wanted to see Jersey Boys as it was, uh, this is the way to do it. Oh, there are a few screens missing uh, with, um, with the projections. But by and large... It's essentially the Broadway set, and it really does work well uh, with these people. <laughs> you need the people better than the set, and uh, the people are there, and they're really, really, really terrific. If, yeah. If ever I would leave, you wouldn't be for Jersey Boys. <laughs> no, no. You you may remember, our listeners may remember, I went to a preview of that show uh, months oh, yeah, ago yeah. Mm-hmm. at the Hard Rock. And uh, yeah, they were really, you know, they really had it all planned out. And it se- certainly seemed like the perfect show uh, for that kind of setting. Yeah, Me, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad it has worked out so well. Is this production uh, related to the off-Broadway thing uh, on 49th Street? No idea. Huh. Have you guys seen the uh, the the no. new smaller production of Jersey Boys? No, no. It, it, I don't even know. Is it still there? I uh, think <laughs> it is. I, I think it is too, but I mean, uh, it, it seems to be very low profile. Yeah. And uh, well, to my knowledge, it, all of those things that are running there, they seem, I guess, to us, they seem so low profile. But I, you know, I, I reported on the play that goes wrong, which was actually better than the Broadway production uh, when I saw it at, at, at New World Stages. Um, and it, uh, I, I guess they. Uh, uh, they get the word out somehow. I don't, you know, through hotel magazines and and <laughs> and, and uh, travel websites and sure, things yeah. of that sort. And yeah. and uh, it's it's so great because you know those theaters were struggling um, for a long time, and and now it seems that this, uh, it, you know, this is this is their new business model to offer, uh, you know, somewhat downscaled version of, of shows that have been on Broadway. Uh, you know, at, at more affordable ticket prices and to run for years. So I just pulled up New World Stages website. They've got the Gazillion Bubble Show, which is playing forever. I didn't know it was still playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Day Drinking, A Spirited History of Drinking, Jersey Boys, The Play That Goes Wrong, Puffs the Play, which Puffs, I just heard, is closing, and Rock, of, a- and Rock of Ages, which just opened. And Avenue uh, Q was, no, was there. Yeah, it just recently. closed recently. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, certainly, uh, Peter, back to your point about Jersey boys possibly extending in Atlantic city there, uh, the Jersey boys website has it in Atlantic city through July 21st. Their next stop is new Haven, Connecticut, October 11th. So they do have Mm. some buffer in there. Mm -hmm. It's possible that you've hit upon something here that they're, uh, trying to sell because, you know, uh, June, July, August, Atlantic city that, that, you know, there's not a hotel room to be had so certainly they could sell tickets there if nothing else is filling that arena there but uh that that is um 
the uh, the Hard Rock is uh, a very popular venue there. So who knows if they'll they're able even able to extend? I mean, who knows? Yeah. All right, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, while I was in Kentucky and Peter was in Atlantic City, Michael was in Provincetown seeing Lee Squared, the Liberace and Peggy Lee comeback tour. So, Michael, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of um, shows in Provincetown were were not yet begun when I, when I visited last week. Uh, they they start just a little later. And in fact, I, I was uh, uh, disappointed because I'm going to be missing, unless I get back there at some point, Sweeney Todd uh, with Tom Hewitt in the title role. Uh, and then they're also going to be doing a, a production of Cabaret and other companies doing a production of Cabaret. But what I did get to see, uh, and I was so happy, is this thing, this you know how some ideas are just great to be so great to begin with that mm-hmm. having having the idea is mm-hmm. you, you're like 90 percent there yes, <laughs> and, yes. and then you just have to do it well. So, mm-hmm. yes, uh, this is called Lee Squared, the Liberace and P- Peggy Lee comeback tour. And um, uh, actually, I know both of the performers, uh, Chuck Sweeney uh, has been doing <laughs> doing Peggy Lee for quite Sometime, and I always thought he was one of the best, uh, one of the best impersonators working that that I certainly know of, and also um, one of the just the idea for that act was so great because Peggy Lee in her later years was quite um, something to look at. She she was very a uh, very uh, she she wore um, uh, voluminous white blonde <laughs> wigs and huge sunglasses. I mean, so basically you couldn't see her. Uh, uh, you know, you couldn't see much of her actual face in her later years. And I and I guess you know she did that out of vanity or whatever. Uh, that was certainly how she looked the last time I saw her at in a in a show that she did at the the Hilton uh, over. On Sixth Avenue, and I don't even remember what year that was, but it wasn't long before she died. Um, uh, his act was always great because of his performance and his impersonation, but also the writing, which was always so, 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 so clever. Uh, and then David Mayoko, I knew as a piano bar pianist, um, and I only knew him in that context, and I actually hadn't seen him for years. I wasn't even sure, you know, where he was or if he was still around. Uh, but I always liked him. And then I read, you know, that he's doing Liberace in this show. And and on the poster and the little postcard, uh, just the photo of the two of these people on the postcard, they you might think that it was the real Liberace and Peggy Lee. Uh, so I thought, well, this is going to be great. And indeed it was. Uh, they put a lot of money into it in terms of the costuming, uh, especially for, for Liberace's outfits, um, of which I think that he had three full changes of these incredible over-the-top capes and and uh, glittery creations. Um, and then, uh, you know, David's piano playing is pretty much world class so he did um i, I he cre- he recreated some of the routines that that the real liberace did and in fact uh for anyone who's seen that fabulous um 
TV movie uh, in which Michael Douglas plays Liberace. Uh, the the opening sequence of that, uh, which is in, it takes place in Las Vegas, with Lee just um, you know having the crowd in the palm of his hand doing this call and response thing while while he's playing on stage. Uh, that was recreated by David Mayoko in this show, and then uh, uh, a lot of it was actually kind of alternating uh, between the two of them. Uh, Lee would do. Uh, uh, Liberace would do a number and then uh, or a number or two and then he would leave the stage and then Peggy would come out and then they would uh, alternate. But then they also sang several things together. And so it was just perfect one hour show and uh, the absolute absolute delight perfect entertainment for this kind of a you know for that kind of a summer venue uh where you don't necessarily want to see anything uh um mm-hmm. terribly heavy sometimes they do uh they do do heavier fare in provincetown and i'm uh you know and i i applaud them for that but i'm not you know i understand if that doesn't get uh the kind of audiences that the the more light and fun stuff does um so i was just glad that that timing wise that this worked out for me to see this because i i had not um seen either of them perform in quite some time and to see them come together in this brilliant brilliant idea uh and and do it so beautifully and so perfectly it was it was an absolute delight and we're told that that uh, tv movie behind the candelabra is now being developed into a musical yeah I, that oh, was really? discussion yeah i'm not sure that i heard that wow wow yeah uh uh, uh what's his name that uh <laughs> he just did a play on broadway bradley cooper uh they're talking about Bradley Cooper for uh, Liberace. Gus is mentioned for so many things. He is white <laughs> hot. He really is. All right. So, Peter, after getting back from Atlantic City, you got over to the Irish Rip on 22nd Street to see, yes, reflections of Molly Bloom at Irish Rip. So tell us about that. Well, uh, this is a one-person show, um, and it's directed by Kira Simring, who I think is a very talented uh, artist. Uh, of course, you never know what's going on with a one-person show. Um, <clears throat> how much of it is direction? How much of it is the um, the, the actress? Um, and um, Aiden Maloney, no, Aiden is spelled A-E-D-I-N, uh, was one of the writers on this with a, a gentleman named Colin McCann, and she plays Molly. And, whoa. Uh, <laughs> Molly Bloom, of course, is a character from James Joyce Ulysses, and... Um, she was the wife of Leopold Bloom. Um, <laughs> um, Mel Brooks certainly used that name in, um, in the producers um, with the least nickname. But anyway, um, if you know the musical Tavarich, uh, there's even a reference to Ulysses. And have you read Ulysses? And uh, somebody's is only the final what, 50, 80 pages, whatever it is, because um, Molly Bloom was very frank about her sexuality and um, how she felt about it. Uh, I believe, I've never read Ulysses, but I believe the book ends with uh, her saying yes, yes, yes uh, to sex. And that's why yes with an exclamation point, even though it's not a musical, uh, is used (laughs) in the title. 
Yes, exclamation point, reflections of Molly Bloom. So it's an 85-minute show, uh, something like that. And um, it's quite impressive in how frank it is. Uh, I couldn't wait to see if he was circumcised, you know, uh, lines like that. Uh, Very, very frank about a woman's sexual deeds. And when you think of what that was in the time, that's really very, very uh, impressive that she um, was this type of woman who could really... Uh, articulate her feelings. And so I really do feel that even though I don't know Ulysses, um, I came away knowing a lot about Molly Bloom. And um, it is entirely possible that scholars of Ulysses will go there and uh, feel otherwise. Um, So I'm not an authority on this, but what I do know is that Aidan Maloney does throw herself into it, even to the point where she bears her breasts. Um, she's very comfortable doing that because Molly Bloom would be comfortable doing that. So, so it's it's uh, <laughs> it's a reasonably erotic uh, evening <laughs> under the circumstances, and um, a lot of talk about lovemaking, a lot of talk about um, how she started when she was very young. In fact, uh, at that time she was living in Gibraltar. Uh, she did get married, um, and um, we hear a lot about uh, how she felt about marriage, and I think you can imagine how she felt about it. She even uh, tried to be a singer for a while, which was something, but a lot of talk about lovers. Um, One she had um, once upon a time, one she's having now, one she thinks she's going to have as time goes on. So, um, and yet, you know, she doesn't come across as slatternly. I mean, she's so wonderfully matter-of-fact about it, and it reminds us that um, we have all these, um, so many of us, not all of us, obviously, but um, so many of us have these icks about sex that um, we uh, have been programmed to have uh, by parents or religion or what have you. Uh, Molly seems to be very um, atypical of that. Um, she she doesn't have any of those values. She doesn't want them. She doesn't feel bad for not having them. And that's what this evening is about. So um, she's really quite fine. And um, I would be interested hearing from people who know Ulysses well to see if um, this show has done it justice. But uh, for those of us who don't know, we might be very, very um, intrigued by the frankness that uh, Aidan Maloney in her co-written play does on stage. All right. So that is down at Irish Shrip, and it actually closes today, July 7th. Uh, Michael, you got over to Staten Island to see a production of 1776. Was it on July 4th that you saw it? Uh Uh-huh. No, but they did a performance on July 4th, and they also closed today. And uh, and actually, we were talking afterwards. Uh, I know several people involved, and they said that they weren't sure, uh, you know, if doing it on July 4th was a great idea. Uh, I guess they wanted to do it for obvious reasons to commemorate the actual performance, but they weren't sure if uh, how the audience would respond in terms of you know actually buying tickets for the day. Because on the one hand, it's nice to you know, it must be nice to see the show on July 4th, but on the other hand, it is July 4th and people have picnics and fireworks and stuff. Well, anyway, they had to turn people away. Uh, wow. For, oh, that's July. great. Yes, huh. yes, yes. And I've, I've spoken about uh, – this is community theater, let me uh, hasten to note. Uh, I've spoken about a lot of the community theater shows I've seen on Staten Island, and I've always said that sometimes the work is really wonderful, uh, but it uh, – Sometimes not when they do uh, overly ambitious shows that with large casts because the talent pool obviously is somewhat limited and they can't uh, necessarily – 
cast large shows very well. So I was a little trepidatious about this when it was first announced. But I guess what happened is uh, that because it is the summer and there's very little else, if anything, going on theater wise on Staten Island, uh, every good person, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, well, not every good person, but all uh, all of everyone who auditioned uh, for this uh, apparently were the the cream of the crop. And I know uh, uh, most of them, uh, at least by having seen them in, in one or two shows. And so obviously I was able to read the cast list before I got my tickets. And I said, oh, well, you know, that sounds like this is going to be really, really, really good. They um, they they have the best people uh, possible in these roles, starting with, uh, well, an old friend of mine, uh, who I did shows with many years ago, John Keaton as John Hancock, uh, and John Adams being played by Jack Dabdub. Oh, yes. Who is the son of the, the, the actor with the same name who had a, a wonderful, wonderful career on and off Broadway. Uh, actually I went to, uh, this 1776 with my friend Kevin McInerney, and I I had neglected to mention to him until we were headed there uh, that Jack pl- was going to be playing John Adams, and Kevin said, "Oh my God, I, I saw his father in so many shows at the at the Muni, uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, among other places." And so, uh, so first of all, Jack's performance of Adams was was brilliant. Uh, no. No uh, overt copying from William Daniels, which I think is, first of all, difficult to, uh, you know, to do uh, without copying because that performance is so ingrained in our heads from the cast album and the movie. Uh, But yes, he I I didn't notice um, I didn't notice him copying his inflections or anything like that. And and uh, but, you know, uh, uh, Sometimes when you see people in very famous roles like uh, uh, the King and the King and I and and the Music Man, uh, roles that are ingrained in our heads as having been done by one performer, uh, sometimes you are conscious of the of the new performer, like purposely doing everything possible to avoid the same line readings and inflections. But then they wind up. (laughs) <laughs> you know, sometimes giving line readings and inflections that are just not good. Uh, Peter obviously knows what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was not the case with Jack. He he made it his own, but he made ev- everything seem uh, completely natural. Uh, his singing voice, uh, to be completely honest, if anything, was probably e- is even better uh, than William Daniels. So, so on that level, it was great. And his uh, just, you know, complete mastery of the role and – uh, and so then afterwards, we were we were you know talking with him afterwards, and, and Kevin was able to go up to him and say how how often he had seen his dad in so many shows and and and, and enjoyed him. So that was a really emotional moment that they had. Um, his father died in, in 2014, by the way. But if you look him up, uh, his Broadway credits alone are, are, are really quite. Uh, astounding, the elder Jack Dabdub. And then uh, I, I'm not even aware of most of the stuff that he did on tour and, and uh, you know, regional and, and summer stock. So look him up. Uh, the, you know, um, the problem with 1776 is uh, uh, that I can't really give 
credit to everyone because the cast is so huge. But uh, Nick Gennaro is Dr. Lyman Hall. John Griffin, uh, you know, who I've known since he was in high school, uh, has now matured into the role of Edward Rutledge. And it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Craig Kwasnicki as Thomas Jefferson Perfection. Um, James McKean uh, did there again a Richard Henry Lee. Very, very different from Ron Holgate, but equally as charming and and hilarious. Uh, Mike Milioni is Stephen Hopkins. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, and I, uh, uh, Robert Vaccaro is Robert Livingston, uh, and my friend, my old high school friend Charlie Sullivan uh, as Ben Franklin. He uh, actually he's the one of the uh, co-producers of this new company called Ghostlight. Productions, actually. Um, and Charlie and I go back to when uh, we were in high school, a high school production of Oklahoma, in which he was Judd Fry and I was Andrew Carnes. So it was just amazing to to see him on stage as well. And um, I have to single out this fellow who played the secretary, Charles Thompson, Frank West. This is someone I am not familiar with. And that role is um, it's it's kind of a. Uh, it's interesting how it's written because it's a it's a turns out to be a pivotal role in a way in the show uh, because of his function at the end. He, his main job is to read. Uh, well, one of his main jobs is to read the dispatches that uh, wind up showing up at the Continental Congress from George Washington in the field. And um, the last one is so heartbreaking uh, that. Uh, he did, uh, you know, I told him afterwards, I said, you made me cry twice. Uh, uh, I said, you know, in that last dispatch. And then also before that, the secretary, Charles Thompson, gets to sing a little preamble right, to right, the right. song, Is is Anybody There?, uh, which then Adam sings the, the full version of it. So um, – yeah, so I was so glad I went. Uh, there were asp- some certain aspects of the show that were less than professional, but I, I don't see any need to focus on that. Uh, I, I just like to extol the work of the in- incredible cast and the director, Gary Bradley. It was really uh, something. Oh, and as I, as I said to everyone afterwards, well, aside from everything else, I'm sure this is the first and last time that I will ever get to see a production of 1776 unamplified with natu- with natural voices. They did it in uh, at what used to be an actual courthouse uh, in the uh, Richmond town section of Staten Island, which is a, a section that um, uh, they I guess they really tried to restore it like sort of like colonial Williamsburg back to how it was in the mm-hmm. in the 1700s. And honestly, they you know, I think they ran out of money at some point, so they never completely uh, did it through through the way that they would have liked to. But there are lots of historic buildings there and uh, including this one. And so they did it in this courthouse, which is really, um, you know, fairly small. It's not a large courthouse. The room is not large. Uh, and in fact, they barely had room for all of the cast members. And I would say uh, five rows of audience. But uh, because it was so small, they were able to do it with no microphones whatsoever. And, uh, you know, a a live orchestra that also was not amplified. Uh, They were behind a little uh, partition, a little scrim or whatever. Um, So I, uh, you know, I mean, one just just does not often have the opportunity to hear 
musicals performed on Amplified anymore. And and usually when we do it, it, it would maybe be in a situation like at um, musicals in Mufti where they only have a piano, uh, you know, and maybe a bass uh, playing along. So this was really special in that respect also just to just a perfect uh, uh, Independence Day weekend mm-hmm. entertainment. Mm-hmm. Michael, has Ghostlight uh, announced what else they're doing? Well, uh, I'm not sure. Sh- uh, they they opened with um, a, a few things. They did uh, 12 Angry Men in that same courthouse space. <laughs> um, and then they did uh, The Fantastics. I didn't get to see either of those. Uh, oh. I'm not sure if they've announced... Um, uh, upcoming things, but I'll there again. I will certainly keep everyone apprised. I'm looking at their their uh, they use Facebook as their primary means of yes. communicating yes. with everybody. They did uh, five women wearing the same dress in Twelve Angry Men. They did the Fantastic 1776. They have nothing announced for the future, but this was their this is their inaugural season. Right. Uh, and uh, I also saw in the Staten Island advance that the, one of the cast members was actually a Staten Island uh, political figure. So oh. that's interesting. Yes, and he was great. He he played the, the you know, you'll not be surprised to hear the New York guy. Um, uh-huh. uh, okay, what's his name here? Uh, Lewis Morris. Yes. And he, uh, you know, he gets to do that, those lines about um, New York keeps abstaining on every question. <laughs> and, and finally, uh, John Hancock says, you know, why does New York keep abstaining? You know, what is going on in New York? And uh, and the, the, the delegate says something like, have you ever been present at a meeting of the New York legislature? Uh, he says, everybody, <laughs> everybody talks very fast and very loud and no one listens to anyone else. So nothing ever gets done <laughs> just to close the loop on everything the article in the staten island advance is written by a woman named carolan benanti oh really so, <laughs> well, i'll put a link to that, that out. yeah i'll put the link to that in the show notes uh we'll have to see if there's any relationship between the new jersey benantis and the uh, staten island benantis or if there's a uh, uh east coast west coast fight going on there one Go other ahead. thing, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I don't want to fail to mention this. Uh, aside from everything that I've already said about how great the cast was, the uh, the role of the courier who sings Mama Look Sharp mm-hmm. was was played by someone who I also don't know. And the reason I don't know him is because he was 15 years old. And <laughs> as my friend Charlie Sullivan said, uh, you know, who plays Franklin afterwards, they thought it was really important to get a real kid to sing that song because those those boys who were fighting in that war a lot of them were sure like that age you know okay so uh those kids that were fighting in those those wars they were only around for a short amount of time and uh peter you got down to the public theater to see we're only alive for a short amount of time at the public so tell us about this show Okay, this is another one-person show, uh, 90 Minutes. Um, David Kale is doing it, and I will admit that at, when it started, I thought, hmm, I'm certainly going to be doing one of my exercises where I think if I can find uh, uh, alphabetically a reference for, uh, 
for every Neil Simon play or Julie Stein musical or what have you. I, I do that um, when I try to get to sleep at night rather than counting sheep. And I thought I was going to go to sleep uh, at David Kill's play when it started out. But my, suddenly, whoa, it became such a galvanizing story. I don't want to give away too much, but let's just say that uh, his mother died and how his mother died and the ramifications of his mother's death especially how it affected the father and how it affected him, uh, are quite galvanizing. And uh, he certainly had my attention, and I forgot about doing anything else. And I just listened, listened, listened to this very sad, very poignant, very horrifying story of what happened to his family and what happened to him after his mother died. Uh, It was not easy for him to deal with her death, considering how it happened, but more to the point, uh, also dealing with people in the neighborhood who had opinions of uh, his mother's death. So uh, I know I'm being purposely vague, but I want to be. But I do want to say that if you do wind up going to see We're Only Alive for a Short Amount of Time, you will indeed be rewarded if you stay with it. Uh, By the way, uh, Cabaret, uh, the film of Cabaret, turns out to be an important element in this story as well. So uh, it's it's very nice to hear that Cabaret uh, has a, a function in this show. Uh, again, when this musical was first produced in 1966, nobody gave it a chance in the world. Um, it was written by the guys who wrote Floor of the Red Menace, who uh, didn't do uh, an amazingly good job with that score. Some of it's good. Some of it is bizarre. And um, and certainly uh, the book writer um, had not had a success, though he, <laughs> he did have a success, um, certainly, uh, artistically with uh, She Loves Me, but Joe Masteroff hadn't had a hit. And the director, Harold Prince, hadn't had a hit in four tries as a director. So uh, nobody thought much of Cabaret at the time. But um, look how it's lasted. Um, when I was in Nebraska, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, um, I was teaching a workshop on uh, drama criticism. And when I asked the kids, I mean, these are high schoolers, uh, what's your favorite show? One boy said Cabaret. And I thought that was really terrific uh, that he said that. Um, And um, if you could go back in time, what would you see? Cabaret was his answer. So um, it's really quite wonderful. And it is, as I say, not irrelevant to we're only alive for a short amount of time. So uh, who knows? Maybe you won't have the same reaction I did at the beginning. Maybe you'll be uh, certainly uh, interested right from the get-go. But I didn't think I was going to be. But um, it's funny that Michael mentioned 1776 because when it started out, it didn't have an intermission. Um, uh, I'm sorry. It did have an intermission, but then they uh, eliminated it because they noticed a lot of people were walking out um, at intermission. They said, if we could only keep them here, um, they're going to be glad they stayed. And that's why the intermission was dropped. The same thing mm. was true of Man of La Mancha. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, once those shows became Tony winning hits, then they put the intermissions back because people were told it was a hit, so they were going to stay. But um, but this, this is a show that doesn't have an intermission. Um, but uh, if you're inclined to walk out, I beg of you, don't do it, because David Kale will certainly um, tell you a story that you won't forget in uh, any time soon. Well, you only have uh, seven days left to see it, so uh, we're only alive for a short amount of time down at the public in the Ansbacher Theater. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you also got up to the Peter J. Sharp Theater on 416 West 42nd Street on the fourth floor to see Camp Morningwood, a very naked musical. So tell us about that. 
Well, you know, this show has really been snake bit. Um, it was supposed to be done at another theater, and they postponed, and all the, so there's obviously trouble going on there. And yes, it's closing today, but um, I have to say, I was very surprised. Uh, at this show, which um, has one lyricist, but a number of um, uh, lyricists. Um, did I say that right? <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. A number, a number of, no, it has book and lyrics by J. Falzone, but then it has one, two, three, four, five um, uh, composers. And um, it does say additional music by James Dobinson. So uh, I was I was certainly interested because Bobby Cronin, uh, who hails from my hometown of Arlington, Massachusetts, and is a very talented uh, gentleman, is uh, was one of the um, one of the uh, composers. And Matt Gumley, uh, <laughs> who actually played um, the Tiny Tim character in my play Adam's Gifts at one point. Uh, are the compose uh, two of the composers? So I was very uh, interested in that, and uh, their songs are quite nice musically, uh, as far as that's concerned. But yes, this is about uh, it's, it's very much like the Rocky Horror Show, frankly. Two uh, in this case, two um, guys, a couple, um, a committed couple, are driving, and um, something goes wrong with the car, and they um, wind up instead of at Frankenfurter's castle, they wind up at this nudist camp. So um, one of them is interested in becoming a nudist while the other is uh, far less interested um, and uh, takes a while before he'll take off his clothes. So, of course, as they say, a very naked musical. And um, the guys uh, who certainly are in the camp are certainly naked. Um, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, I would think for a production like this, I would think that there would really be a concerted effort to find uh, men who are astonishingly endowed, and um, that was not the case here. And that may be one of the reasons why it didn't catch on and why it's closing today. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's really what the audience comes to see. And um, yeah, I, I, I know it's a terrible thing to bring up, but uh, I have a feeling that may be one of the reasons why it's closing early, that if they had really found some people who... Um, um, I'm I'm quitting while I'm behind. Um, anyway, so, should, so can we say should we say that these people were miscast? Oh. Yes, I, I I think so. I think they were. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, they were perfectly fine entertainers, and I have to give credit uh, to one guy um, who um, who's. A heavyset guy, and uh, I won't mention his name. I'm not even sure who he is. I have an idea from the picture here um, in in the playbill, but um, <clears throat> he's um, look who's talking. He's substantially overweight, but um, you know it, it's it takes a lot of courage to. I mean, I haven't seen been seen in a bathing suit since 1971. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I, and it ain't going to happen anytime soon. So uh, you know, so I really admire that he's uh, able to get up there and. Uh, uh, being um, overweight, uh, substantially, in fact. Uh, so uh, credit where it's due, but it also indicates um, that you know a lot of actors will do a lot to uh, to be in a show rather than wait tables. Hmm. All right, uh, Michael. We have um, Harbinger Records, a uh, subsidy of the Musical Theater Project, is has uh, released Philemon, the uh, Tom Jones Harvey Schmidt. Re-release from 75, and uh, you wanted to tell us about it. 
Yeah, this is one of the m- most wonderful things that's happened recently as as far as I am concerned. I didn't even know what's happening until uh, uh, Ken Bloom is uh, is you know the the head honcho at Harbinger Records and he c- casually mentioned that they had re-released Philemon and I uh, I said, "Oh, <laughs> you know, I would really love a copy of that." I had had um uh, some kind of a dub from an LP uh, that someone gave me at some point because it had been out of print basically since it came out in 1975, and um, but that dub was from a uh, uh, from a warped LP, so it wasn't even that good. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a show uh, from the mid 70s that. I would, I think it's fair to say, is one of the most obscure um, musicals of all time. Um, although it did have a um, a TV production on something called Hollywood Television Theater, and uh, that still exists. Uh, you can perhaps seek that out on YouTube or or elsewhere, and certainly at the uh, at the Paley Center, uh, the former Museum of Television and Radio. I know they have it. Uh, and it's worth it for the score and the story, which are so incredible, and also the lead performance of Dick Latessa uh, as Kakian slash Philemon, who, went, of course, went on to a, quite a brilliant career. Uh, we mentioned Hairspray earlier. Um, this is uh, based on a, a germ of a, of a, of a story uh, that apparently was – the, the germ of the story was true, uh, an incident in ancient Rome where a um, a uh, street clown uh, pretended to be a uh, religious – a Christian religious leader and then wound up actually uh, assuming the role uh, – you know, in real life, really being becoming a Christian himself and and taking over the the, the role of this person that he was impersonating. In the musical, it's written that um, he is hired by uh, a Roman captain to uh, impersonate this fellow because they want to put him into the pr- uh, the Antioch prison and to find out uh, who the who the leaders of the Christian movement are and root them out that way uh, so that uh, a lot of that part of it you know the details all the details were invented by Tom Jones uh, in writing the piece um, and it's so interesting to read the notes the copious notes in this beautiful new edition of the the cast recording, um, uh, Tom says that they had problems with the show uh, in the beginning because they didn't feel it was a full story, and they and they didn't uh, it, it didn't seem to warrant a whole evening, and and uh, the character the central character didn't seem that interesting, and uh, then they suddenly had a light bulb moment, and I, I guess. Tom did uh, and said, well, what if he starts out as a very amoral guy? Um, This, you know, this street clown called, they wound up giving him the name Kakian and he does, he performs very vulgar, uh, uh, you know, uh, and political humor types of shows in the streets of, of Antioch. And suppose that this, you know, really, vulgar, amoral guy who's only out for himself and just trying to, you know, get along. Suppose he is the one who gets hired to portray this priest, uh, Philemon. Uh, and 
when once they came upon that idea, then it just made all the difference in the world because then you see this character's transition from uh, from this this real low life uh, amoral person to someone who actually I, I don't want to give any details away because the story is so beautiful. But he he actually ends up becoming a Christian martyr, and uh, and also I might say uh, I no one is more uh, anti organized religion than me but uh but regardless this is one of the most moving musicals i've ever seen because uh we see that uh you know how these christians uh in the in the prison are being persecuted for their religion and uh and for no other reason and just how they're being tortured and starved and and it's uh it, it just is really a, a beautiful story that Jones and Schmidt, um, who were supremely talented people, uh, managed to turn into this musical that should be much, much better known than it is. But now um, you have this easily accessible reissue of the original cast recording. And as I said, if you want, you can try to maybe seek out that video version. It's well, well worth it. Uh, also, I, I will admit that a song called The Streets of Antioch Stink mm. does not sound as if it's going to be terribly entertaining, but it has one of the best codas I have ever heard in my life. I adore it. Um, yes, it's it, and it's definitely, I mean, if, if you heard a measure of the music, you'd say, ah, Jones and Schmidt. It is so distinctly yes. there. Yes, um, with, yeah. with those with those uh, orchestrations that uh, we always hear from them, and it really is top notch work. And um, I am delighted that it is available again. Um, it, getting that album once upon a time was not an easy thing to do. Right. And and so uh, I also think there's there's a song called "The Greatest of These," um, which is really right up there with with Schmidt's "Try to Remember." Soon it's going to rain and my cup runneth over. Yeah. So um, so it really is quite a good album, and I I I, I urge you to. Uh, get it all right so that wraps it up for the morning uh before we get on to trivia i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be downloaded to uh, apple podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to us in apple podcasts there's many ways to listen to us iHeartRadio plays us tune in plays us stitcher plays us google play plays us anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast you can find broadway radio's offerings contact information for peter for michael and me can be found in the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. I also wanted to mention that uh, starting this fall, we are going to have a Saturday show that's going to focus on regional theaters around the country. And uh, I'd love to hear from the listeners. Use that contact information to get in touch with us and tell us uh, what you want to hear in your region of the country. So uh, similar to this week on Broadway, it's going to be uh, this week in theater. And it'll be from around the country. So Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? When the original cast album of this now famous and often revived, but not Tony-nominated musical was released, its two stars were above the title. Some years later, the recording was reissued with a new cover. But then, the two stars had been joined above the title by a third, even though he'd only been fifth billed on the original jacket. What's the show and who are the three stars? Well, <clears throat> there was a time when Columbia Records reissued Camelot. 
little revisionist history. Richard Burton and Julie Andrews were again above the title, but now joining them was Robert Goulet. Although he'd received fifth billing on the original artwork, which, by the way, has since been restored if you buy the album now, mm. he'd become a name in the intervening years since Camelot's opening, and they figured that they'd capitalize on that. Tony Janicki, of course, was the first to get it, followed by Brigadier <laughs> Jack Leshner, Alan Loder, and Ingrid Gammerman. So, this week's question. A musical opened on Broadway and got plenty of good reviews that could have run in the ads. But the management and the authors decided what would be more fun would to be have theatergoers write limericks that praise the show. And each day in the ABCs, a limerick would be placed in the ad rather than the critics' raves. The grand winner, by the way, would get a free trip to New York, dinners, the original cast album, as well as tickets to that musical and a play that the same management was then sponsoring. As it turned out, before the contest ended, the, musically un- the musical unexpectedly won the Tony for Best Musical, and the management decided to run that achievement in the ABC ads, so no limerick was ever published. What's the musical? Hmm. If you have an answer to that, let us know by emailing us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Within this empty space, there are secrets to be revealed. There are things that we know in our bones to be sold and emotions belong to Just as much as we desire Clowns Clowns being human Well, of course there will be clowns And if laughter makes us tired Tears, tears In the end there will be bitterness And tears and the purifying fire